This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, today's Stormy Daniels report, the president in the last hour or two for the first time spoke on the record about Stormy Daniels. He denied everything. Joshua Holland of The Nation will comment. And to commemorate Martin Luther King on the 50th anniversary of his assassination, which of course was yesterday, uh, we'll replay an interview with Tava Smiley about the last year of Martin Luther King's life and about how his 1967 speech criticizing the Vietnam War was denounced first by the mainstream media, the New York Times called it disastrous and self-defeating, but also by most of black America as well. First up, Adam Hochschild on Guns in Trump's America. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, how can we explain the love affair with guns in Trump's America, especially after the killings at that high school in Parkland, Florida last month? Adam Hochschild has been thinking about that. He wrote about it for the New York Review. He's a regular contributor there. His books include To End All Wars, which is about World War I, and most recently, Spain in Our Hearts, America in the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 39. We talked about both of them here. He teaches at the Graduate School of Journalism in Berkeley. Adam, welcome back. Hi, John. Good to be back here with you. Well, you went to a gun show uh, recently. What was it like? Well, it was at the Cow Palace, which is just south of San Francisco, uh, an enormous uh, exhibition hall there, longer than a football field, 48,000 square feet. And every inch of this huge room was packed with tables displaying every conceivable you know, type of, of rifle, handgun, an ancient musket that fired uh, with black powder, a uh, Japanese gun that fired a bullet that was an inch and a half in diameter, plus all kinds of survival in the wilderness gear, a beef jerky, bear jerky, uh, emergency flashlights, uh, uh, knives of all sorts. And um, I, I was also struck by the fact that scattered among all this stuff, which is appear, appealing to gun lovers and hunters, uh, there were all kinds of bumper strips and cloth patches that you could uh, sew on your jacket, saying things like uh, Jihad Free Zone. <laughs> Uh, 9-11 was an inside job. Uh, the wall, if you build it, they can't come. Uh, mm. a hunting permit, unlimited for ISIS, uh, and on and on like that. Do you, think, uh, uh, do you think anybody at the Cow Palace there voted for Hillary? I doubt it. I doubt it. I would say that, uh, you know, 90% of the people there were men. 98% of them were white. And I didn't see anybody who looked like a Hillary voter. Maybe a few people working these tables selling stuff who'd been sent out by the store they worked at, but uh, otherwise I think not. Well, this was in Daly City, which is a suburb of San Francisco. Of course, San Francisco's probably the most liberal anti-gun city in America, in the state of California, where the laws controlling guns are stricter than almost any state of the union. Was there any sign uh, that these people are in a, a, a 
blue sea of anti-gun legislation? Uh, well, I think they would call it a, a red sea in the sense of being communist. There was uh. one guy selling T-shirts uh, that showed the state of California with a gold star and hammer and sickle superimposed on it. And I asked him what the shirt meant, and he said, oh, the state's gone communist. <laughs> Pardon me for laughing, but uh, uh, I, I don't know. Did you discuss this with him any further? Uh, only to just uh, ask exactly what he meant by that. And he said uh, he hated to say it, but it was Reagan that gave away California to the communists when there was the 1986 uh, amnesty where uh, something like 2.7 million previously undocumented uh, immigrants in the U.S. were given resident alien status. Hmm. We have to takes a minute to get over that uh, that idea. So, uh, uh, and did anybody tell you at the gun show that the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun? Uh, no, but you know, one hears that uh, every time that there's another one of these tragic mass shootings, like the one that uh, happened a few weeks ago in Parkland, Florida, and of course. The NRA leaders always say exactly that after each shooting. Uh, President Trump, uh, you know, said after that last shooting, well, teachers should be armed. And then shortly after that, you may remember, John, there was a episode somewhere, I forget where, where there was a teacher, school teacher somewhere in a classroom demonstrating a gun to students, and it went off accidentally. And then my favorite comment on that was Andy Borowitz, the humorist for The New Yorker, posted a, uh, a thing saying uh, Trump's new solution is post a second arm teacher <laughs> in each classroom <laughs> in case the first arm teacher does something wrong. <laughs> so it's a pretty crazy country we live in when it comes to the mania about guns. Uh, there's a lot of difference among the states, not just California, but a lot of states have stronger gun laws and a lot of states have very... Uh, uh, weak gun laws, and we have statistics about the difference among these states. Do we find that bad guys with guns uh, run amok in these states with strong uh, gun laws? Uh, no. We find that, that these laws have measurable effect on how many people get killed. You know, Massachusetts, for example, has, I think, the highest or almost the highest uh, uh, safety rate when it comes to this sort of thing in the United States. Uh, has some of the most restrictive firearms laws of any states. Three people per 100,000 in the state are killed by guns annually, while in Alaska, which has some of the weakest gun laws, the rate is more than seven times as high. And I, I don't think you can explain it really any other way than just by saying that safety regulations surrounding guns uh, have an enormous effect on how many people get killed by them. If you compare the U.S. with uh, the 22 other wealthiest and most industrialized countries, somebody living in one of those countries has on average one-tenth the chance of being killed by gunfire as in the United States. And they all have much more strict laws regulating the sale of guns. Uh, and, you know, there are all kinds of things you can do. Frank, for example, you can uh, say, you know, people have a right to have guns, but they have to be kept under lock and key at home. 
you know, you you limit or prevent the sale of guns to somebody who's mentally unstable, who's under a restraining order, uh, who's blind. In the state of Iowa, a blind person can carry a gun around in public. Wait a minute. I just want to pause at that point. In the state of Iowa, what what happens in the state of Iowa? A blind person is allowed to carry a gun in public. And what are they supposed to do with it? Well, your guess is as good as mine, John. <laughs> I guess I you guess know. they're supposed to stop a bad guy with a gun. Right, but you have to be very careful at uh, where you aim that gun, especially <laughs> if you can't see. So, you know, so the I mean the American laws on this subject are just a patchwork of absurdities, but we certainly know both from comparisons with other countries and from comparisons within our own states that sensible gun legislation can save a lot of lives. And there are a lot of lives to be saved because more than 30,000 Americans uh, die from guns each year. Uh, Another 80,000 are injured. And, you know, these are, we should also remember that uh, the vast majority of those deaths are not from the mass shootings that get all the publicity, you know, Park, Florida, uh, you know, the uh, Las Vegas, uh, the Orlando nightclub, and so on. Those are the ones that get in the newspapers. But uh, most of those deaths are suicides. Uh, people who study suicide, uh, you know, can show that the availability of a deadly weapon increases the likelihood that somebody's going to be successful in a suicide attempt. That's why they put up suicide barriers on bridges and places where people might jump off. Um, So there are a lot of lives to be saved there. There are more people in the United States who have been killed by guns in the last 50 years alone than have died in uniform in all the wars in American history. That is a shocking statistic, and uh, I, I wish more people knew about it. You know, what you hear a lot from gun uh, advocates, especially at these gun shows, and you ask them, well, why uh, why do you think I should have a gun? They will tell you that, well, if you don't have a gun in your home, you won't be able to stop intruders who, you know, will rape your wife and kill your children and take your TV set afterwards. Um what are the uh, the, the statistics about uh, the use, who uses guns in the home and for what? Well, unfortunately, most the vast majority of guns that are used in homes are used either in domestic disputes within the home or a toddler or somebody goes into the into a closet and finds a gun that's not locked up and sets it off uh, accidentally. Those are overwhelmingly the people who get killed by guns uh, within homes. There are rare cases where somebody's managed to shoot a burglar. Uh, And, of course, whenever that happens, the National Rifle Association trumpets it uh, very loudly. But it's pretty rare. I mean, we've all had experiences, I think, of our homes, uh, you know, somebody trying to break in. Usually they try to break in when they think you're not there. Yes. If they discover you are there, they run as fast as they can uh, away. Yes, yes. Um, so it may make you feel better to have a gun, but if you have a gun in a unprotected place where you can, you know, easily grab it every time you answer the door, well, 
you know, that increases the chance that your visiting grandchild may set it off accidentally. Well, the reason there's so much variation in state gun laws uh, is that the NRA, of course, has the National Rifle Association, has a tremendous political clout in the red states and in the Congress of the United States. Um, I was interested to learn from your article in the New York Review that the Koch brothers have been major funders of the NRA. You know, I don't think the Koch brothers really believe that having guns in their homes will enable them to shoot intruders trying to rape their wives and kill their children. Why do you think the Koch brothers are major funders of the NRA? Uh, yeah, I think they their homes have other protections uh, around them, I'm sure. Uh, I think f for two reasons. One is that the NRA is so effective at turning out right-wing voters. You know, they've got five million members, and their real strength is that these are people who vote according to what the NRA tells them. Every member of Congress, every member of the Senate, every state legislator is rated on his or her attitude towards guns, and people who join the NRA, who are not all gun owners in the country, but those who care most passionately about that, and they tend to be people who, you know, where owning a gun is an important part of defining who they are. Uh, they will vote. Uh, they turn out to vote in huge numbers, a very high proportion of them vote, and they vote according to what the NRA tells them. And, you know, a legislator's position on guns, uh, if they're very, uh, you know, pro-gun, the chances are that on all the things that really matter to the Cokes and their ilk, which is lowering taxes on business and uh, eliminating regulations of every sort, they're the same legislator is going to be in favor of those things. I think for the Cokes also there's another benefit, which is that the more noise the NRA makes, the more it spreads the idea that the real source of political power in this country comes from owning a gun and yeah. not from owning, say, a you know, $50 billion industrial and commercial empire. Yes. Excellent point. You know, uh, Obama was a great thing for the NRA and for the gun manufacturers because they could say, Obama is coming to take away your guns, then you won't be able to shoot the people who are coming to, you know, rape your wife and kill your children. And so you need to vote Republican, you need to buy more guns before Obama takes them away. Today, of course, nobody thinks Trump is going to come and take away their guns, but this fantasy of the the, the uh, ATF agents, or I don't know who, coming to take away your guns has become a very powerful one in that far-right sector of America. Did you see signs of that fantasy at the gun show in Daly City? Oh, I saw one bumper sticker on sale that said, uh, gun-free zones kill people, uh, things, like the, things like that. But I think, you know, we have to sort of step back and analyze that fear. They're going to take my guns away from a, a psychological perspective because the people who are most passionate about this, they tend to be, as you say, people from red states, from rural areas, uh, <clears throat> from poorer parts of the country, from Appalachia, from the Deep South, and so on. And these are folks who have seen a lot else in their lives taken away. Jobs, for mm -hmm. one thing. Mm -hmm. 
these are areas of the country where unemployment tends to be higher, where you know industries like coal mining have shut down, where manufacturing of all sorts has uh, fled the United States for low-wage countries overseas or is gone forever because of automation. And so, you know, these are people who've seen a lot taken away, and uh, and I can feel for them. You know, they've suffered. And I think the NRA very shrewdly focuses their fear on the idea they're going to take away your guns, and this is something that... uh, politicians can promise, you know, we'll never take them away. Whereas, of course, you can't really promise that you're never going to take, you know, that somebody's job isn't going to be yeah. going to disappear because everybody knows it's a very unstable economic climate, particularly for lower wage workers in manufacturing type industries. You know, we haven't said very much about Trump up to this point. Where does Trump enter this story? What's Trump's place in the the uh, fantasy world of of those the far right wing uh, NRA members. Well, he's the first sitting president in three decades that has addressed an NRA convention, and he told them, you know, you have a friend in the White House, and your Second Amendment rights will forever be protected, and so on. Uh, I think, to me, the scary thing uh, about Trump's relationship to guns is this: one branch of this phenomenon is the rise of the militia movement. Yes. And we've seen these folks, you know, we saw them marching through Charlottesville, Virginia last August in their camouflage jackets and so on at that rally trying to prevent the Robert E. Lee statue from being taken down where there was, you know, somebody killed by one of these right-wingers who rammed his car into a crowd. Uh, We've seen them at these... uh, land occupations in the western states, in Nevada and Oregon, um, where, you know, armed militia gather because they, you know, they're in defense of uh, some rancher who wants to graze his his cattle on national forest land uh, and so forth. So they're the, and they're also armed militia who have, as volunteers, gone and patrolled near the Mexican border. What's ominous to me is that under Trump, that number of armed militia groups in the United States has soared very ominously. Uh, The Southern Poverty Law Center, which counts these kinds of things very carefully, counted 165 armed militia groups in the United States in 2016. That number rose to 273 armed militia groups in the U.S. uh, last year, 2017. And... I'm afraid of a couple of things there. One is that the next time there's one of these standoffs on an occupation of national forest land, such as we've seen, uh, I can't imagine the Trump administration cracking down on people who are the concentrated essence of uh, his base. And is that going to encourage more occupations? Uh, I don't know but I think it's something we have to worry about. The other thing, of course, is that at some point, Trump is going to be forced out of office, whether being by being not reelected in 2020 or impeached before then. What are these armed militia groups going to do then? What are the armed militia groups going to do then? Adam Hochschild, he wrote about guns in Trump's America for the New York Review. It's a terrific piece. Adam, thanks for talking with us today. 
Thank you, John. Uh, keep up the fire on Trump, okay? Okay. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch, online at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Next up, today's Stormy Daniels segment. It's in a minute on KPFK when our program continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Tavis Smiley, our interview about Martin Luther King's final year. But first, today's Stormy Daniels update. Uh, just a, an hour or two ago on Air Force One, Trump for the first time talked about Stormy Daniels on the record. He was asked three questions. Number one, did you know about the $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels? Answer, no. Second question, do you know why your attorney Michael Cohen made that payment? Answer, you'll have to ask him. Third question, do you know where he got the money? Answer, no. Uh, First time Trump has been on the record on this. We have the response of Michael Avenatti, the um, the attorney for Stormy Daniels, who says uh, this is great news for us because you can't have an agreement with somebody who doesn't know there is an agreement. For comment on this and the larger question of why Republicans believe Uh, Trump on this issue. We turn to our chief stormy correspondent, Joshua Holland. He's a contributor to The Nation, a fellow at The Nation Institute, and he's also the host of Politics and Reality Radio. Josh, welcome back. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. So this is what Trump said in the this afternoon about Stormy Daniels. For a long time, the Trump camp has been saying None of this is is true, uh, and Trump's attorneys have argued that Stormy Daniels could owe Trump about twenty million dollars for violating the non-disclosure deal. Uh, do Republicans really think the president should sue a porn star for twenty million dollars? Well, um, I'm not sure what Republicans think at this t- point in time, but I can tell you that it was. Um, notable that Trump went after Stormy Daniels the way that he did, because I think that best practices in terms of containing a scandal like this is to ignore it. And I'm surprised that he didn't just say, well, that's fake news and, um, and leave it at that. Instead, he had his legal team threatening to, as you said, sue her for tens of millions of dollars. Um, but, I mean, it's important to point out how utterly ludicrous the messaging about um, Stormy Daniels coming from the White House has been from the beginning. So, as you, as you note, he has said consistently that he had no affair with this woman, yet Michael Cohen, who is known as a hyper-aggressive bulldog, who does not compromise with anyone, supposedly went and gave her $130,000, out of his own pocket, he actually got a credit line on his house to do it, didn't tell Trump, didn't enter Trump into this agreement, and um, 
And it had nothing to do with the campaign, even though this happened weeks before the election, because that would make him liable for a um, an illegal campaign contribution, an in-kind contribution. So it has been a muddled mess from the very beginning. And the to us, it's a muddled mess, but 41% of Republicans recently said in an opinion poll, they believe Trump's side of the story, that it's all fake news. There's nothing, nothing true about it. Uh, the big question here is, how could 41% of Republicans believe such a contradictory and ridiculous story? Are they just stupid? Well, I'm not going to rule out the idea that they're stupid, but, <laughs> okay. you know, this is a, a thing of partisanship, and <clears throat> we, all, we all suffer from um, motivated reasoning, which is the idea that when you feel strongly about something, you tend to disregard um, facts that conflict with that belief and embrace quote-unquote facts, no matter how dubious they might be, that confirm that belief. We all suffer from this, and, and I think that um, it's important to understand how effective Trump's consistent shtick about fake news is in terms of uh, keeping a hold of his base, because the process of cognitive, um, of motivated reasoning, requires some alternate set of facts. You need to have something to grasp onto in order to re reject what everybody else is saying, basically. So from the very beginning, Trump has deftly used this idea that the news media are all out to get him, and they make up stories, and they invent things out of whole cloth in order to insulate himself from um, the consequences of all these stories that are always coming out about him. So it's it's actually pretty savvy when you step back and you think about it. I don't want to give Trump too much credit, of course, because conservatives have been doing this for a long time. But he's taken it to another level. I mean, that's the thing, as is often the case with Trump. He takes these things and then he turns it up to 11. So, you know, conservatives have long claimed that the media has a bias, a liberal bias. But yeah. bias, let's keep in mind, is a subconscious process. And Trump has come up and he said, no, no, it's not a liberal bias at all. They are fabricating, intentionally fabricating stories to damage me and, and other Republicans and conservatives. That's not liberal bias. That's not an accusation that the media is biased. That's saying something very different. And enough of his supporters have uh, embraced that idea that he literally can get away with shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue, as he so famously claimed during the campaign. Uh, I, I heard on Fox News a, a slightly different argument. Um, the media, they say, have a double standard. They're obsessed with Stormy Daniels, but they're not talking about what Bill Clinton did. Uh, this sort of suggests that maybe what Stormy Daniel says is true, but... Uh, let me ask you this, though, John. What year is this? Because uh, <laughs> that's really the answer to that question. It's like, yeah, we talked a lot about what Bill Clinton did back in 1998. I think you're right. For it. We had endless, endless wall-to-wall -wall news coverage. The media were obsessed with it. They went on. They covered every minute detail. I found out way more about the president's private parts that I ever wanted to know. 
And um, it was nonstop. The coverage was nonstop. Now, they expect us to continue to cover a 1998 story in 2018, and that's just ridiculous. It's, it's, it's whataboutism at its worst. You know, of course, we're not talking about Bill Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky in the 1990s because it's 2018. <laughs> I think you have an airtight argument there. The other <laughs> argument I've heard on Fox News is nobody cares about Stormy Daniels. What Americans really care about is that the president is creating jobs with these tariffs. That was actually said on Fox and Friends, Trump's favorite TV show. Again, it's not quite the same as the whole Stormy Daniels thing is fake news. It's that nobody really cares. Well, uh, that's a common refrain, and um, it's hard to quantify. I think that, you know, for me, the fact that Donald Trump had an affair with a porn star um, is inconsequential and completely to be expected. Uh, that's not news. It's the cover-up that is dogging Donald Trump. It's this payment of $130,000 in hush money um, for an affair that he denies having. It's the cover-up, not the crime. I don't think that it's terribly interesting that he had an affair. I, I, would, I would expect that he's had many, many affairs. I can't imagine that he's been faithful to anyone but himself over the years. Um, but, you know, there is a serious issue here, which is that Trump's lawyer, um, uh, Michael Cohen, went and paid Stormy 130000 bucks in hush money three weeks before the election. Um, and that appears to at least violate campaign finance laws. It, it seems like it's, there's all sorts of ethical problems here. He didn't have Trump executed the agreement, uh, according to Cohen. He didn't tell his client he was entering him into a binding agreement. Um, there, are, there are very real issues here. As for the job creation, you know, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Fox News, which is, you know, would make Pravda embarrassed, um, they, they are running interference for this administration. The job numbers, you know, there was a study that showed that we'll lose five jobs for every job created by the tariffs. So uh, the idea that these tariffs are creating these gobs of jobs is just, it's Fox News. It's really, it's interesting that they, that so much of what conservatives uh, what forms the conservative worldview appears to be projection. You know, they, there is a, a um, media outlet, there are multiple media outlets that intentionally shade the reality to uh, conform to a political agenda, and they are, you know, Fox and uh, Sinclair Broadcasting and Breitbart and et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's, that is the alternative reality in which Trump supporters live. So, you know, we're seeing... We're seeing a certain set of events unfold before our eyes, and they see something completely different. You know, if you are a, a loyal Fox viewer, you have every reason to believe, because you saw it on a national news broadcast many, many times, that the biggest scandal is something to do with Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama spying on Donald Trump, and the media um, refuses to report that story, in order to cover up for Hillary Clinton and attack Donald Trump. That's what you would believe if you, um, if you watch Fox News regularly. Joshua Holland on Motivated Reasoning. We all do it. 
His piece for the nation.com is titled The Trump Team's Account of the Stormy Daniels Story is So Bad It's Funny, So Why Do 41% of Republicans Buy It? Josh, thanks for talking with us today. John, thanks for having me. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Martin Luther King's final year. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry, quickly. But first, yesterday, of course, was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King. Tavis Smiley knows a lot about the last year of King's life. Of course, Tavis was the longtime host of a talk show on PBS and the author of more than a dozen best-selling books. We spoke with him in 2015 when his book, Death of a King, The Real Story of Dr. Martin Luther King's Final Year, had just been published. I started our interview by asking Tavis how he would describe Martin Luther King's final year. Hail, pure hail. You start with that key turning point in King's political life in America, the speech at Riverside uh, Church, New Mm -hmm. York City, April 1967. That's when he came out against the Vietnam War. And what was that memorable line of his? He called America the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. Now, this is Dr. King, who is highly respected and highly regarded. Uh, As you mentioned, he has a Nobel Peace Prize, and he is um, on the list of the most admired Americans uh, for years running now. Uh, And yet, he's still a black man. This is still the 60s. And he is saying to America, you, America, are the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. As you can imagine, that did not sit well with many Americans. Well, it's a a shocking, uh, still a shocking and and unforgettable sentence and and a true one, I Uh think. Uh, So how did, first of all, before we talk about the reaction to that, I wonder how he came to that point where he made the decision to, to say that astounding sentence that's a beautiful, uh, in public. Beautiful question. Um, so Martin had been on the record opposed to the war in Vietnam, but had not gotten around to giving a major address laying out why he was so vehemently opposed to this war. He hadn't done that for a number of reasons. Number one, because everybody in his camp, that is to say everybody at SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, his organization, was opposed to him taking this issue on. They reposed him taking it on because they knew that it was going to detract from the work that they were doing in the South on voting rights and civil rights and human rights. They said, Martin, that's a mistake, number one. Number two, they knew that if Martin said what they thought he was going to say, all hell was going to break loose. Number three, they knew it was going to dry up their money. I mean, everything that they knew was going to happen, in fact, did happen in spades once he actually came to the decision to give this speech. Uh, And uh, Martin was not the first, you know, Negro out front on the war question. Stokely, Carl Michael was way ahead of Dr. King, and there were others. As a matter of fact, one of the things that Stokely, you know, giggled about and always took pride in was that he was the one that really sort of pushed Dr. King to be more vocal against the war. So the point is that it was these young people, these youngsters, 
that were and King is of course is young. He's dead at thirty nine, <clears throat> but it was these it was these real young people that were pushing Martin King to be more vocal against the war in Vietnam, almost chiding him at one point about why you won't say more, why you won't do more, why you won't use your voice. So after enough pushing and prodding and praying and 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 and, and soul searching, he decided to give this speech. And if you hear the speech, you can go online anywhere and Google it these days. You can hear you can hear it or certainly read the transcript. But he starts out by saying, I have come to this place tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. And then he says a beautiful line. There comes a time when silence is betrayal. Mm. There comes a time when silence is betrayal. And so Martin is basically saying, I'm betraying myself. I'm betraying my country. I'm betraying the best of who I am and the best of who we are if I don't come out and say tonight what I'm about to say. And then he says it. He calls America the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. And then he says something else, that we are essentially, Martin argues, we're going to lose our democracy if we don't get serious about the triple threat facing our country, the triple threat of racism, poverty, and militarism. So as long as he's talking about civil or human rights, America says, Negro, you, we'll tolerate you. So this is the lane, black man, we're going to let you run in. But ain't nobody asked your opinion about foreign policy. <laughs> and nobody's asking you about, about racism and poverty and militarism. Stay in the lane that we've ascribed for you to run in. And Martin would not be boxed in. And because he would not be boxed in, he gives that speech. And when he got out of that box, all hell broke loose. We go back to where we started. It was a year of pure hell. So what was the response of, of the, let's call it the mainstream media? Hmm. I've said many times that there, there, there was no Fox News around, you know, 50 years ago. But had they been around, we can only imagine the field day they would have had just yeah. completely ripping him to shreds. I mean, it would have been 24-7 wall-to-wall coverage on Fox News eating him up. Um, so Fox News wasn't around, but they didn't need Fox News then because the liberal media did the Fox News job on Dr. King. So when you read – I'm so glad you asked this. When you read what – and this, we have it in the book – when you read what the New York Times said about him, it is embarrassing. Yeah. When you read what mm-hmm. the Washington Post said about this speech the next day, it's humiliating. When you read what Time Magazine said that week, it, it'll make you cry. I mean, it's just hard to imagine that the liberal media went after Dr. King the way they did. Now, again, you fast forward all these years later with the streets and the schools and the holidays that bear his name and the holiday and the monument in Washington and all of that. It's hard to juxtapose the fact that, that the media had just basically turned on him. In the last year of his life, they wouldn't run his op-eds. The New York publishers would not publish the book that he wanted to publish. So he couldn't get an op-ed. They wouldn't publish his book. <clears throat> he couldn't get a paid speech. He was not welcome in black churches. Black politicians didn't want to be photographed or seen with him. The NAACP turned on him. The Urban League turned on him. Adam Clayton Powell Jr. turned on him. Thurgood Marshall turned on him. Ralph Bunch turned on him. The bourgeois elite turned on him because they were upset that Martin was going to damage the relationship that black folk had with Lyndon Johnson. Johnson, to many minds, had been the best pres- the best friend that Negroes had had in the White House since who? Since Lincoln had freed the <laughs> slaves. So they're like, Negro, you're going to mess it up for all of us mm-hmm. by getting into it with Lyndon Johnson. So the bourgeois elite Negroes were mad at him for angering Johnson and messing up that relationship. And the everyday black people, certainly the younger black people, um, were interested in Stokely 
and black power. H. Rap Brown, Huey P. Newton, the Black Panthers. So Martin, in his own community, didn't have a constituency with the bourgeois Negroes or the everyday Negroes. So in the last year of his life, again, we come back to pure hell, pure hate. He really has no constituency. Yeah, I made some uh, notes from your book, Death of a King, of, of uh, what the mainstream media said about mm-hmm. King's speech at Riverside Drive. I'm sure you remember these. The New York Times said, called it disastrous, wasteful, and self-defeating. Mm. The Washington Post called it a grave injury to his natural allies and even graver to himself. Mm. And Life magazine said, comes close to betraying the cause. So this was pretty much, as you say, the consensus across the board. Uh, what was his response? The most beautiful thing about this text and the research for this text is that while Martin was depressed at times in the last year, was despondent at times in the last year, sometimes had to cry himself to sleep. Um, he knew there was a bullet out there with his name on it. He's catching hell and hate from everybody. Inside of his camp, he's... Uh, being he has to deal with his own board voting to condemn him for coming out against the war. His treasurer, James Harrison, he doesn't know this at the time, of course, but James Harrison, his treasurer, is on the FBI payroll. His photographer, Ernest Withers, is on the FBI payroll. So he's being sold out from the inside, catching hell and hate from the outside. The media is against him. Uh, the White House is against him. White America is against him. Black America is against him. He knows there's a bullet out there with his name on it. And every day he's trying to get up to your question, and find the courage, the conviction, the commitment, the character to keep trying to tell the truth as he knew it. How does he respond to your question? He has to pull and pray himself through the depression, the despondency, and the mania that he was feeling because of the way that everybody was coming at him. There's a story in the book, as you know, um, and let me just back up. In the last year of his life, Martin is hospitalized a number of times. The official reason for his hospitalization was always exhaustion. And to be sure, he's running from pillar to post. You've seen this hectic schedule he had the last few years of life trying to organize the Poor People's Campaign. He's on the move all the time. So to be sure, he's exhausted. But he also has a sense of mania. There's a book coming out, I think, next year by a professor at um, Tufts, I believe. Um, and the book is a book that is going to be controversial, but it's going to look at um, – uh, it's, it's basically a psychological profile of Dr. King, and it's a psychological profile all these years later based on what you ask, based on his hospital records, talking uh, a lot of interviews with people who were around, et cetera, et cetera. But it's looking at his mental state. What we now know is that Martin had a sense of, of mania. What the researchers tell us now 50 years later is that persons who have that kind of mania, that kind of depression, end up, and it makes sense when you think about it, end up having a greater empathy Mm-hmm. a more radical empathy for others because they know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So the researchers now tell us that people who have mania are actually more empathetic than the rest of us are. Mm-hmm. Those, of us, those of us who think we're sane and don't have to deal with depression and despondency, we don't have as much empathy as those who suffer from mania have. So Martin has mania, and it gives us some way into understanding how he could have such a radical empathy. So again, I'm back to your question. How does Martin deal with it? He deals with it by pulling and praying and pushing and powering himself through, sometimes through tears, though. One day he's trying to get out of, his, out of his room. He's dressed, fully clothed, as I said. Gets to the door. The depression hits him. He can't even get out the door. He gets back in the bed, pulls the covers over his head, fully dressed, cries himself to sleep. There's another night. His doctors tell him from being so exhausted that he needs to get, uh, get away for a few days. He goes to Jamaica with a couple, with a couple of some of his staff members and, uh, to get away. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, they come to check on Martin, 
and they go into the bedroom and they can't find him. Now they're scared because he's got death threats every day. They know he's depressed. When Martin was a child, you can read this in the book, of course, when he was a child at 12 years of age, he tried to commit suicide. I'll let you, I'll leave that hanging for a second. Ooh. He tried to kill himself when he was 12. So this mania had followed him his whole life. So they were worried about Martin. Three o'clock in the morning, they can't find him in his room. They walk all around the room. They go to the hallway. They go to the lobby. They're searching everywhere. They can't find him. Has he killed himself? Has he been kidnapped? I mean, what, what, what's happened to him? They finally remember that the hotel suite he was staying in had a, a balcony that wrapped around the bed, around the room, rather. So they'd gone out to the, to the balcony and didn't see him. They forgot it went around to the other side. So they walk around to the, this L-shaped balcony. They walk around to the other side, and there's Martin King at 3 o'clock in the morning with his pajamas on, and he's looking out at the ocean, and there's a huge rock out in the middle of the ocean. And he's staring at that rock, tears running down his face, three in the morning with his pajamas on, and he's singing over and over again an old gospel hymn. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. The song, as you well know, is a song, uh, the, 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 lyric, the lyric of the song is basically saying, Rock of ages, cleft for me. I, I just want to hide myself in your bosom. I want to escape this and get away from this. Martin knows his time is coming to an end, and he just wants to hide in the bosom of his Savior. And they say, Martin, what's wrong? Why are you out here? And they can't console him. And, and once they know that he's essentially okay, he's alive, they leave him to himself. They come back at 8 o'clock in the morning. Martin is still standing in the same spot with his pajamas on singing that same song. So that's the long answer to your very short question. <laughs> but he has to pull and push and pray and power himself through these moments of depression and despondency and hell and hate because he knows that he's telling the truth, even though it's too subversive for us to handle. Does that answer your question? Ooh. Yeah. Of course, we're speaking with Tavis Smiley. His new book is Death of a King, the real story of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s final year. I thought I knew a lot about Dr. King. I teach about Dr. King, but <laughs> there's so many wonderful things in, in this book. But, you know, there's some wonderful vignettes in this book of Dr. King that were some of my favorite parts of the book. Eartha Kitt at the White House mm -hmm. Luncheon. Remind us about Eartha Kitt at the White House Luncheon, a story I never heard before. Eartha Kitt was a great, great entertainer, to be sure. One of the greatest of her time. Had been invited to the White House for a ladies' tea with Lady Bird Johnson. Uh, in the midst of the tea, uh, President Johnson walked in, unscheduled, unannounced, to greet the women at the tea. And Eartha Kitt has an opportunity to talk to Lady Bird and President Johnson in front of a group of women and she basically offers a stinging critique of the war in Vietnam and what's happening to our boys and what they're doing to our boys and, and how this is a, a mistake and this is not what we ought to be doing. I mean, she basically gives them a Kingian critique mm -hmm. of the war in Vietnam. And it made all kinds of national news because Lady Bird Johnson was so hurt and so embarrassed, she broke down in tears and walked out of the room. Now, when you make the first lady cry, make her walk out the room, that's going to make some news. <laughs> and so <laughs> Eartha Kitt was, um, was like Dr. King. Eartha, and this is, of course, this court, of course, this happens after King has already been, you know, labeled persona non grata by the rest of the country. So now Eartha Kitt steps into the same mess that King has stepped into, the same mess that Ali has stepped into by not fighting in the war in Vietnam and having his title taken from him. So there are a number of Negroes who do have the courage to step up and to do this. So Eartha Kitt steps into it, 
And you can imagine what the media said about her the next day. And for years, in many ways, for the rest of her career, Eartha Kitt never, ever rebounded. We remember, for those of us who remember watching Batman back in the 60s, you know, she was on that series and, you know, Catwoman and very popular on that. And she continued to perform and entertain. But Eartha Kitt's career, I think it's fair to say, never, ever rebounded um, from that kind of major setback because the media tore into her. Dr. King not only sent her a telegram saying how courageous he thought it was of her to say what she said, he phoned Eartha Kitt and spoke to her. And when asked by the media about what Eartha Kitt had said, he gave her a wonderful uh, endorsement in the media. So King uh, was one of the persons, at least, who endorsed and supported Eartha Kitt for telling the kind of truth that she told. But she she chose an interesting place and an interesting moment to do it, and she paid a heavy price for it. It's a fantastic story. Yeah. So the year that began with the furor over King's uh, Riverside speech criticizing the Vietnam War ended, of course, in Memphis. Mm -hmm. What was King's Memphis campaign about? The Memphis campaign, in short, was was a test run. Um, King had not planned it this way. He had no idea that conditions in Memphis were going to galvanize these sanitation workers to fight for their rights and to demand the kind of respect uh, that they deserve, the kind of respect for their humanity and their dignity. Um, so he didn't obviously know that was coming, but, you know, sometimes, you know, as we say in the, in the black church, the Lord works in mysterious ways. And so here is a campaign about poverty. King is working on a national campaign about poverty. He's traveling the country, organizing what he called the poor people's campaign. As I say in the book, King was going to be the original Occupy. We think of Occupy Zuccotti Park, New York City, but King wasn't going to New York. He was going to Washington to the nation's capital, on the National Mall, where there now sits a monument honoring him, he was going to the National Mall to organize and to roll out what he called the Poor People's Campaign. They were going to set up a tent city. King and thousands of others were going to camp out and live on the National Mall in tents and stay for as long as they needed to embarrass Congress and the White House to do something about poverty. Why? Because Johnson has called for a war on poverty, but now he's engaged on the war in Vietnam, and King is saying that war is the enemy of the poor. The bombs you're dropping in Hanoi are landing in the ghettos and barrios of America's cities. King is saying that our priorities are wrong. King is saying, and I love this, um, that, that, that budgets are moral documents. Hmm, budgets are moral documents. That's what King is saying. So he's headed to Washington as he's organizing this campaign. So up jumps this opportunity in Memphis for him to go to Memphis on the issue of poverty and to use this as a a jumping off point for his larger and broader national campaign. So when the when the call came, um, against the advice of all of his staff, just like they advised him against speaking out against Vietnam, King says, we're going to Memphis. He goes the first time, and as you know, because you teach this stuff, the first time he goes, a mini riot breaks out, an uprising breaks out, because there are some young folk who infiltrate this march, and they start breaking windows and throwing rocks. And so the first march devolves into violence. And the national media has a field day with this. King has lost control. He can't even, he can't control his own people. His violence message is no longer resonating. He's out, he's, he's, he's out of step and out of time. And he's no longer the leader that he once was. It's, you can imagine the storyline that was being played out in the media. And King was embarrassed by that. And they blamed everything on him. He had nothing to do with it. He's there to lead a peaceful march, but he, of course, got blamed for everything. So King says, I'm going back to Memphis in a couple of weeks, and we're going to do this again, 
and my team is going to organize this, not the people in Memphis. We're going to bring my team in from Atlanta. We're going to organize this march, and we're going to do it right the second time. Of course, as you know, the march never happened. Well, it did happen, but King was assassinated prior to it happening, and they went through with it anyway. Coretta went to Memphis and, and continued that fight. Uh, but um, Martin never made that second march. Tava Smiley, you've written something like 16 books. Uh, the latest, newest one, Death of a King, the real story of Dr. Martin Luther King's final year. What was it like for you to write this one? Um, the greatest story of my life. Uh, in terms of my, in terms of my my, my career and, and work in literature, um, I've been blessed to do a number of books, as you mentioned, and every one of them, you know, these are all your babies, as you know, and you love them all. Yes, it's like asking which one do you love the most of your children. You love them all, so I, you don't invest this kind of energy and effort and, and passion into a project if you don't really care about the subject. But I've said many times that I regard Dr. King. It's my own assessment. People don't have to agree with me on this because there are a lot of great Americans. But I regard Dr. King as the greatest American this country has ever produced. That's my assessment. And I think even if the audience um, might disagree with me on that, I don't think there's much debate about the following, that King is America's greatest democratic, small d, America's greatest democratic public intellectual. He is our greatest democratic public intellectual. And I've always regarded him as such. And when I was a 12-year-old kid, I fell in love with Dr. King. So I've been studying King since I was literally a child. Uh, prior to my becoming a teenager, I was in love with Dr. King. And all my life, everything I get my hands on, I've read and listened and watched and, and researched everything there is about King. Over the years, I've become friends with his three principal biographers, Taylor Branch and David Garrow and Claiborne Carson. They're friends of mine. I talked to all of them before writing this book and what I wanted to do. And I wanted to just look at that last year because I think it's the most dynamic year of his life. And it shows who Martin really is. When all the hell and all the hate's coming at him, Martin still stands in his truth. He doesn't back down. He doesn't let Hoover and others, you know, uh, blackmail him with the stuff they think they have on him. He stands in his truth. So I, this is the Martin that I love the most. The one when when everything is coming at him, he doesn't he doesn't falter. He doesn't give in. Now I love that Martin more than the Martin of the Montgomery bus boycott, more than the Martin of the March on Washington, more than the Martin of the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act, more than the Martin of the Nobel Peace Prize. This is the Martin in this last year who I love the most because of the way that he would not let misery have the last word. Martin was going to be heard. He was going to speak his truth. And all these years later, as we established earlier in this conversation, all the accolade proved that Martin was right. But it took us a long time to catch up to him. And so this is the book that I've been wanting to write literally since I was a kid. It took mm. me a while to get there. Uh, and, I, and I wanted to do something, as you said earlier, that, that was different than all the other great work that's already been done about him. And I hope, again, this book does two things. I hope that, one, it gives people some deeper and greater insight into the life and legacy of Dr. King, certainly as one sees what happens to him in this last year. But I also hope for something else, that this book becomes a cautionary tale to those of us who live and work today because there's a message here, and the message is simply this that our society pays a heavy price when we ignore the truth tellers amongst us. It's not easy to tell the truth these days because people are so cynical and people don't want to hear the truth. Um, and, and you look at Martin, what happens when you tell the truth is first they, they, they abandon you. That's what happens to Martin. They abandon you and then they isolate you and it makes it easier for somebody else to assassinate you. 
either literally or certainly character assassination. But that's what we do to people. We, uh, we don't want to hear the truth, so we abandon them. As I say, we give them the Heisman. We abandon them, <laughs> and then we isolate them, and then we assassinate them. And that's what happened to Dr. King. But what price does our society pay when we ignore people telling us the truth about the environment, climate change and global warming is real? This ain't no joke, even though people want to make it a joke. When we ignore the truth tellers about poverty threatening our democracy, I believe that poverty is now a matter of national security. And if so, written in a book called The Rich and the Rest of Us, which we talked about with Cornell West. So poverty, we don't want to hear the truth about that. We don't want to hear the truth about a drone program on steroids that's killing far too many innocent women and children and making more enemies for us as their survivors grow older. Um, uh, we don't want to hear the truth about torture and Guantanamo. and you know, I mean, there's just so many things about which... We don't certainly don't want to hear the truth about, you know, the money in our politics and and you know we call it a democracy, but it's more and more looking like an oligarchy or a plutocracy. We don't want to hear the truth about that. So people are trying to tell us the truth. We keep ignoring it, and long term we're going to pay a heavy price for that. So I hope this book again is not just about King, but a cautionary tale for those of us today about how somebody, somebody has got to tell the truth. It's not easy to tell the truth. But Tavis Smiley does it every day and in his new book, Death of a King, The Real Story of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Final Year. Tavis Smiley, thanks so much for this book. Uh, and great, thanks for coming in uh, today. Great, great, great honor to be with you. Thank you. We spoke with Tavis Smiley in 2015. That's it for today. I want to thank my, my other guests, Adam Hochschild and Joshua Holland. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.